Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a 1,000 certified organic family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thrivingfarmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. Today, my guest is Brad Russell of Chestnuts in the Ozarks in Omaha, Arkansas. Brad's lifelong respect for nature, along with his dedication to sustainable agriculture, has guided him and his wife, Sandy, to revive and sustain the long forgotten legacy of chestnut farming in the United States. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So share a little bit about what got you started in chestnuts. No, that's a good question. Um, I guess maybe maybe stepping back, we, we purchased some property in 07 without even thinking of, of farming at the time. Um, just kind of blessed along the way to kind of string some property together. And I wanted to, to, to find something, uh, you know, to, to do with the property. Um, as you know, well, maybe... This part of Arkansas is extremely challenging to to grow, you know, mm-hmm. really anything from like soybeans to corn. What I do have is well-drained acidic soil. Um, mm-hmm. Did some experimentation, a uh, proof of concept with some chestnut trees early on, probably 2014. Um, and then I think 2019 is really when I, when I saw, you know, how the chestnuts were we're, we're thriving here in, in the environment here and really just started with, with mass planting, um, probably, probably approaching the 2000 trees or, or better here in, in the orchard, um, so far, but, but still at the early stages and they're just slowly starting to kind of come into production. Uh-huh. So then, um, with chestnuts, obviously the biggest challenge is disease. So why don't you start, you know, why don't we start talking history of the chestnut so we get started that way so people can understand kind of like what the current state is in the U.S. Yeah, um, it's interesting. If you, if you poll, you know, 10 people, maybe one or two may know what a chestnut is. Uh, I think they're what they're going to remember is, is the song of chestnuts roasting in the open fire. But but mm-hmm. the blight, the, the blight, um Early 1900s, blight came into the United States. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but the, one of the greatest ecological disasters in the United States was the loss of the American chestnut trees. Um, so the blight has pretty much, there are pockets of maybe some American chestnut trees left and um, that piece there. But what what, what we have here on, on our farm are blight resistant. So you've got to, of mixture of trees from some, you know, I would say complex hybrids, uh, American genetics, Europeans, Japanese, and primarily genetics from 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 Asia. 
uh, mm-hmm. um, with that, with the, our trees there. Gotcha. Because the American chestnut was a massive tree, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it would be easily 100, 120 feet tall, six, eight feet around at the base, some of them, and was a major food source. It Agreed. I mean, it was known as the Redwoods, um, uh, you know, as far as east of the, I would say, east of the Mississippi. The, the trees um, were really a staple. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to to the United States during that time, it was essentially used uh, rot resistant wood. Um, the chestnuts as a whole, I mean, it was it, it was something that you know that people relied on during those during the, the, those times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the blight came over. Gosh, I'm just trying to remember. Um, Early twentieth, so I think I forget what year it was, but it came in from people actually imported Asian chestnut, Asian chestnut trees, which I don't know why they needed to do that. Oh, but wasn't it for someone of the zoos? I think actually it may have been one of the zoos because it came into New York City originally. Correct. Yeah, um, and since then there's been a lot of you know work to restore. Now I know right now actually I don't know if you saw the I'm sure you're aware of the news um, that they're doing some genetically modified chestnuts and actually I guess there's some major fallout around that. There is. I think it was termed a darling fifty six. Um, mm-hmm. What they mm-hmm. were trying to do there, um, what I understand is they inserted a, a wheat gene. Um, what what the expectations were by inserting that wheat gene would provide the the blight resistance uh, to the American chestnut tree. Um, something happened there within the last couple of weeks. Um, that information is still kind of still just kind of coming to the public, but there was a, a mishaps or a handoff um, during, I would say, during the growing of the, of the trees and the testing, they identified a critical error in, in, in the genetics of the tree. Um, so that that project has, has been suspended. Um, that doesn't mean that the effort to bring back the American chestnuts is over with, uh, but it's 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 taken a significant hit for the, the time that they had put into this because they were going through the process of getting, um, I guess, approval from the United States government um, to, mm-hmm. to, to get that approved to be able to have that released and people could start, you know, growing the American chestnuts that were modified. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about what the disease does, because, I mean, a lot of people can start growing chestnuts, but the disease will knock them back, correct? That That, that is correct. Uh, I mean, Ozark, we have some Ozark chicken pen chestnuts, too. They were also impacted by the blight. Um, I do have some of those and those from the American Chestnut Foundation. Um, I've got a few of those and those are producing nuts. They're taking a different route. Um than the American chestnuts, but what you'll see is that the tree may be able to reach to to a height of and in maturity to be able to produce American chestnuts, uh, the nuts themselves. But at some point or another, they will succumb to the blight. Uh, for some for some reason, there on the west coast, where you you have pockets of American chestnuts, where I guess the blight they have restrictions for importation of certain um, chestnut trees from shipping or from other parts of the United States where, where those, you know, where, where the blight is not actually there on the West coast. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I, for some reason too, sometimes they can grow through the blight too, from what I understand is that the blight will knock them back and then they'll kind of like be down for a couple of years and then maybe start to come back a little bit. Yeah, most definitely. There's, I mean, there's probably stumps here in the United States that are just, um, they're just amazing. I mean, just the trees as a whole, um, how they will just, the stumps are probably a couple hundred years old now will, will shoot up you know, a central leader of the main trunk um, get to a point where it will attempt to reproduce at, at some point, or maybe it doesn't even reach that that level and then dies back. It's just an endless loop of trying from mm. from a survival perspective. Gotcha. But they just, they're never going to get that hundred foot tall, you know, that beautiful canopy again. So talk us through a little bit of like the different uh, ones you've got. You said you've got a lot of complex hybrids and uh, like the um, European chestnuts, they just don't get the blight because they are more resistant to it, correct? Um, the Europeans, there's very little blight resistance in the Europeans, so they are susceptible to blight. Okay. Um, that, If I'm pronouncing it cor correctly, it's Castiana mollissima is the um, chestnut, you know, the scientific name of the chestnut from from China, that's where these are predominantly uh, the genetic stock are from. Um, okay. So those actually have the blight re resistance, but there's a lot of crossbreeding, um, cloud pollination that's occurring here across the United States, and and sp specific you know hand pollination that that they're doing to create more complex hybrids. Gotcha. And the goal is that eventually we'll just get to the point that it's hybridized enough to get a, get away from the disease. Yes, but not not getting, you know, exactly, uh but not getting back to that pure pure American at, at this point. So Yeah. These yeah. are more culinary and chestnuts, so um they're going to have that, you know, they're going to have a, a larger uh, larger nut than the traditional Americans and um you know from from the individual or who you may talk to, uh, it's they're, they're going to be a, a sweeter nut too. Okay. So the American chestnuts, they were a smaller and harsher flavored? Um, much smaller nut. Um, okay. They, they were still, you know, still a highly coveted nut for, yeah. for like human consumption. But, you know, from a, from a, you know, if you're thinking about some of the others, the, the ones that, that we have and others are growing from the United States that are, not American. They're they you know preferred is you know from taste testing to be sweeter than the Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then and so then with your work, what you guys are doing, um, talk to us through a little bit of kind of like the how, how the planting goes on your farm. Yeah. Um, so most of our stock we've actually um, up up from where you live today is out of Ohio. A uh, lot of bare root planting in the spring, so I have to be very careful in the planting process. The uh, the anticipation of the bare roots to get them in the time of the year uh, where you can avoid frost, because it seems like after you get those bare roots, they want to leaf out, and then if you have a frost or two, you could potentially lose those trees. So I'm planning. I've been planning on on. 30 rows, 30 row spacing between each row. 
and then every okay. 20, 20 feet apart. But I, I, I've since gone down to 20 by 20 spacing. Uh, that way, okay. a little bit more labor, a little bit more investment. But if you think about the long run, if we have to make decisions on what trees uh, remain and which trees that you cull, um, you can make your money back from from the chestnuts, the harvest from, from those trees. Before you have to make the decision to, you know, actually, um, I would say, culling, terminating the tree probably around year 15, year 20. Gotcha. Okay. And then with the um, the ones you're working with, are most of those going to be pretty resistant or are you going to have your battles with the individual trees? No, not not to the knowledge from from the breeders that we we purchased from. Um, these are all um, blight resistant trees, and I want to be careful with the word resistant. And um, you know, you hear like you know water resistant. Um, yeah, from from that concept there, right? So um, it's not uncommon that you could see you know some indications of blight but they have the ability to heal over that and, and fight that mm -hmm. off, unlike the Americans. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, so with your, your planting, do you do any watering or you do any fertilizing kind of how did, what's the care for them? Yeah. So no, that's, that's, that's a, a good question too. Um, the first year is extremely important that, you know, if you're doing the planting in the spring, I, I guess I'm a, a champion of fall planting, but um, but getting bare roots in the spring, um, that first year is critical for actually having, um, keeping them watered. And then not this year wasn't overly bad, but the prior year, um, I have a mm. tendency of biting off more than I can chew. So mm. I thought I would individually decide to plant 550 bare roots and um that that kept me busy that summer because I, I do i do have a day job so this is mm. this is kind of i'm still in the corporate world me and my wife um so it's it, it is a stretch and um there is a considerable distance from the farm to to our home there in, in bentonville arkansas gotcha okay so getting out there is actually a bit of a challenge it 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 is. It's about a little bit over an hour and a half, but there's still a lot of, um, I would say, um, a, a hybrid work environment still today. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability to do some time in the office and uh, focus on the time out here on the farm. Uh, and I'm very extremely thankful for daylight savings time too. Gotcha. Yeah. So you had a little more time to work. Um, share with me about, um, you know, if someone was interested in putting trees in kind of like, what would, what would they need to think about? I think the first thing that, you know, first and foremost, you, you're going to want to have a soil test. Um, okay. chestnut trees like, you know, 6.5 or below, uh, you're going to need mm -hmm. well-drained soil. You need to be thinking about false frost pockets. So when mm -hmm. I'm talking about frost pockets, it's frost settling into kind of the, the lower part if you've got some ridges. You also have to be thinking about protection as far as as far as how are you going to protect those trees earlier on. I have all my trees staked and I use tree tubes for, for a couple of reasons to kind of kind of help um I guess as far as uh protect them from from deer. Uh it seems like everything loves to eat chestnut leaves, not and not only the nuts mm. themselves. Um so that's there's an investment there. 
Um, so, you know, you got to be thinking about fencing long term, uh, some some form of fencing. Um, I know you mentioned fertilization. I typically don't fertilize my trees the, the first two years. Um, okay. A couple of reasons there is you really, you know, if you have everything there within the, the radius of the tree, why would the tree want to venture out and and, and in a from a root perspective, the roots could be mm. confined to that area. So you, you want those roots to really anchor down and branch out or around that tree. And then then start with your fertilization. Gotcha. Okay. And um, I'm assuming you're mowing between these during the year? I am. Um, what, I, what I'm really doing is, you know, there's, there's always lessons learned with anything that you do within farming. And it, it takes, I guess it takes time and when i say time is looking at your mistakes and see, you know come, coming back to that and what what could you do different so i really just kind of took off and you know uh, i would say a pastor didn't really need a, a lot of tlc um so you had a lot of invasive a lot of a lot of weeds and um getting to a point where i'm incorporating more of a kind of like an orchard uh, type of, of grass to reduce labor, uh, fuel, okay. and, and, and the whole getting away from the mowing as, aspect. So it had lots of really tall fescue. I mean, it's great yeah. for cattle, uh, but I'm looking more, more into a lower growing grass with less maintenance. Gotcha. Yeah. So then with this crop too, um, you said animals love it and do uh like so you couldn't graze the orchards with with um with cattle or something um so i'm thinking of, of silvio pasture down the road so i've got another area that i've been working with uh usda through the equip program and maybe maybe through an agroforestry grant um you know through 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 we threw our name in the hat for that but really want to lay that foundation of, of low growing natives and wildflowers uh, or, or what you would, most people would say Forbes and, and plant that and then incorporate potentially uh, sheep, you know, down, down the road in our future, but cattle could be done. But I guess in the early on stages of the trees, you'd have to be extremely careful with that. I've had quite a few deer yeah. There this year for the first time, I've got them staked with a, you know, a six foot in a tree tube. And I've, I've got deer for the first time that are, you know, prior to the, to the rut or the, the breeding season, mm -hmm. uh, you've got the bucks that, that the deer are just tearing up the tubes and the rebar and the tree. To oh, the wow. ground. So that's struggling. That's a struggle. Definitely. Um, yeah. So then what insects are there that people may want to watch out for too? Yeah. Insects. Um, you know, I think one of the two years ago, um, Japanese beetles were, were really bad. I would say, you know, you got the trees in that first year and you know, that really, you know, the, the leaves are the solar, con solar conductors for the trees. Uh, I had Japanese beetles in the tubes, on the leaves. So treating those were, were a challenge. I would say that's that's probably one of the worst worst ones. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're using tree tubes, I would just recommend to your listeners, and they're looking at chestnuts, 
uh, in the summer. Just be extremely careful because wasps love to, to take up a house in a tree tube. But I really think those, the Japanese beetles, are really the worst ones that I can think of. Maybe late in the fall you could see uh, some type of um, worms. I don't know, you know, I wouldn't call them a bagworm, but I've seen some some areas of the trees where they would just you come back tomorrow and all all the leaves are gone. I don't know if that would be an army worm, but still one of the things that I'm, I'm keeping an eye on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then let's talk through a little bit about what, what does harvest look like for these? Yeah. So my wife and I, Sandy, we've we've done some some tours of some mature chestnut orchards. But harvest would look like probably a good month and a half of one's time. Um, some of the varieties you have are early dropping or mid or late. So we've got a good, you know, we, we've got a good uh, variety of trees to kind of keep us busy. You know, when that time comes, I'm starting to see some production. You can typically start, uh, the industry says year four. Um, but it's we've started seeing chestnuts as, as early as in year three and on some trees, rare occasions on year two. Um, but the, the trees need to be harvested. Well, the nuts, they need to be harvested daily. So looking at that down the road, it's how do we source labor to do that and look look at sales? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, markets, are most people buying these fresh or? Yeah, uh, and that's the thing. There's there's not enough chestnuts in the United States today to make any value-added uh, products. When I say value-added, like making chips or, or converting those into flour. Um, a lot of people don't understand that, that you know, the chestnuts, every, well, everything that you can make with wheat uh, today, uh, you can make with chestnut flour. It has a gluten-free aspect, so you've got that. Um, and also you've got, you know, the, you're not hitting the reset button every year. When I say the reset button, if you're thinking about like, uh, the wheat, um, and, and your, your annual crops, you've got a perennial crop, uh, that's going to live for, for hundreds of years. If you take care of your orchard. Hi, this is Nicholas and Jenny. We are the proud owners of Crystal Organic Farm located in Newborn, Georgia. And uh, we've always been certified for 30 years. We eat organic food. We're really into what we eat and where the food comes from. Jay and I, we were talking and going to the grocery store that that even like organic, you have to read the labels. And uh, the word organic does not mean what it used to mean. And so when the Real Organic Project came on and we talked about it, it seemed like a great fit for us. This label not only goes back to the roots of what organic farming used to mean, but also this reassurance that what you're getting is true organic product. There's farmers running it, farmers working for it. Like people that have true experience in farming are the Real Organic Project. Be sure to apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. And what do what did the, the trees cost? Like in a bare root stage, what's that typically run compared to? And I know th- that, I think you also sell them in like one gallon or two gallon pots. Yeah, so so bare roots at the volume of, and buying them, um, you know, it seems just everything continues to go up. But I think I've been able to the source bare roots seven or eight dollars. I've seen some 
some places selling bare roots as high as like 15. Um, what we've been selling to kind of pass time and to, you know, help with expenses along the way. I've been um, selling trees in three gallon pots, some air air pruning pots. So you got a really good finished tree. Um, our trees typically average, uh, to be conservative, I, I tell customers four feet kind of guaranteed, uh, but you're, you're getting trees um, much taller than four feet, six, seven feet. I've had trees in their first year um, that I that I've be able to that I've been able to grow out to like nine feet. So it's it's been pretty exciting. Um, what would you say um, the plans are for the orchard in the future? I think as far as looking at, I think we have to you know figure out the whole supply chain aspect. We've got thinking through as far as channels of of how we're going to to sell them. I think mainly mm -hmm. those are going to be online, um, online sales, thinking through like, what does you pick operation look like? Um, and then, you know, as far as direct, direct sales here to, to local places here in North Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And then harvesting them is a bit of a pain because of the uh, husk, right? It, it, it is, but you, you, you really want a tree that, that drops the, I would say, you know, the chestnuts from the burr. There are some varieties okay. that, you know, that some varieties that you have where they may just they don't have a full release, so it may be a little bit of work. I don't know if, if you've ever handled one. <laughs> they, you, I've you handled have, like three in my lifetime. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah you, you have to wear gloves. Um, there's not a lot of machinery today in the United States, but I, I think with the, the where the industry is, is heading, you're going to see a lot of um, companies become interested in chestnuts from a machinery perspective. They have that in Europe um, and they have it in Asia, but, but bringing machines online, but really just today, as far as what that looks like is it's manual. It's, it's picking them up off the, the orchard floor today. Yeah. Yeah. Just sweeping them all up, putting them in. And then I'm sure they have machinery that will go through and, sort and stuff um or even knock any of the holes off if there's still holes on them yes correct so are the holes prickly enough that they can cause um or do cause like splinters they have i've sometimes um forget gloves and i get a little ahead of myself and um find myself getting getting splinters in my you know in, in the fingertips so it's yeah, it's it's not fun if you've ever had a wood splinter. It's it's to that to that aspect there of getting one stuck in your finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anything else you'd like to share about the chestnuts? Um, I don't think so. You know, it, it seems like well, I do. Um, I think looking at the industry, I mean, if you think of chestnuts, there's if if you can do the education and the awareness of chestnuts and um, there's, there's, there's been communication out there, the United States, I think is bringing 20,000 acres online. It doesn't, it sounds like a lot, but if you think of it is, if you, if you think of it as kind of what we have in production today is, is with wheat with 50 million acres, it's not mm -hmm. a lot, but it, it's just our agricultural model here in the United States. Um, I haven't, you know, 
Tennessee think it's broken. If you look at Europe and you look at Asia, they've been eating chestnuts for thousands of years. Uh, so it's it's perplexing that it's taken this long to kind of to start building, you know, um, building that out here in, in the United States and kind of how it can kind of help get away from a lot of the, I would, as I mentioned earlier, just a reset button of just doing some of the annual crops and a lot of heavy inputs and a lot of heavy labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, again, it's easier to grow uh, another hundred acres of wheat than to try oh. to find a new crop many times. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where can folks find out more about what you're doing? Um, we have an Instagram page and also Facebook. Our our website is chestnutsintheozarks.com. So those should, that should also be pretty easy to kind of find on Facebook and, and Instagram. Very cool. So thank you so much, Brad, for your time today sharing about chestnuts and uh, look forward to keeping watching your journey and um, as your orchards keep maturing. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate your time today. Absolutely. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.